I will talk through the microphone, uh, partly because it will be louder, but also I tend to slow down psychologically when I see a microphone. So I will speak slower to the microphones in front of the microphones in front of me. As I apologise for those that, that didn't catch everything I said prior to coffee. So yeah, so so in front of us we have our attempt to name and to observe realities as they impinge upon different groups of people and we acknowledge the contestedness of it that these things are not absolute factors we can see it's interesting that we've only disagreed on two occasions but actually one of the issues about theologies of liberation especially for it's rare that people ever sit in one fixed category usually there's what people uh, uh, what's called called intersectionality it's just a fancy term uh, the academics, if, we, if, we, we can't, if you can't think of a word, invent a new word and throw that in. And the, and the longer it is, the better it is, because it makes us look really clever. Um, so really, intersectionality is just, it's simply the acknowledgement that we, there are intersections, there are connections between groups of people. But it's very rare that someone is in one particular category. So, for example, like the white working class person, if they're male, that's different from being a woman, or different from being disabled. That each category itself is complexified by the more information we have around the different isms that we cross over. So as I said, so for myself, I'm a black male, but I'm a middle class educated male. I'm not the same therefore as my working class brother who works in a factory. Some respects we have lots of them in common, in other respects we have very, very different world views and the world treats us differently. In other contexts it makes no difference whatsoever. But those things are not fixed. So how I might get treated when I get stopped by the police might be similar to how my brother gets treated. But that's not the same as when I turn up at a place with my fancy title and whatever and my younger brother turns up with none of those things. Part of the danger sometimes is that, in our analysis, is that we see these categories as too fixed. Too fixed. And, and again, and, and another fancy term people sometimes talk about is that we talk about essentialism. And essentialism is where we say that there's some essential quality or essential element to a particular category or group that almost makes it closed or enclosed. So, for example, if we take like the woman business woman, at one level, she's a woman. And in some respects, we can make some generalizations in a world run by men with power. Of course we can. But of course it doesn't tell you what type of woman is, it doesn't tell you what kind of ideology she is. There's a big difference between, let's say, a younger academic woman who has studied and is progressive in her, in her politics and social views or someone who's like Margaret Thatcher. Both are women and both are white. But, it, but the danger sometimes is that we can almost conflate things into, well of course, actually once I know what category you're in then I know, ex I know everything about you. And that, and that of course isn't true that within that there are still differences and of course ultimately all of us are individuals 
And so one of the dangers sometimes of theologies of liberation is, is that we can fall into, into this identity politics that becomes quite fixed. If we turn to our sheet, we're not going to go through all of it because in some respects actually, uh, actually we've done a lot of it already just in terms of our conversations around the exercise. But if we, if we look at the theological method, so the ways in which theologies of liberation are done are often very different from how traditional theology is often done. And so one of the first differences, which in a sense we've already done, is that we take the context seriously. We take the situation in which people live seriously. We take the fact that the location where you are doesn't determine everything about you, but it does, it does determine some things about you. On another occasion, if, if we had more time, there's an exercise I do where I get people to fill in different aspects of their identity through a series of concentric circles. One of the things that comes out are all the things that feed into who we are in very complex ways. So we are the sum of what scholars call the root, R-O-O-T, and the root, R-O-U-T-E. Don't quite work as well where Jen comes from. In terms of root and route, just don't quite sound quite the same way. But obviously, root and root. Root, all of us come from someplace. That our historical roots help to shape us all of us part of some narratives. One of the reasons why people who are adopted or don't know their family often, not always, but often yearn to find it is because part of how we determine who we are is the story of the community that we're a part of. So I grew up as part of the Windrush generation. When I was growing up, back home didn't mean Bradford. Back home meant Jamaica. And back home was as real to me as going down to the shops with my friends, even though I didn't go there until I was 17 years old. But back home was what my parents talked about. Oh, back home in Jamaica. And I internalised it. I was back home. So all of us are part of the root, R-O-O-T. But also, also of us are part of a root, R-O-U-T-E, in that there is a figurative journey that we're on, that our faith speaks to. So all of us have come from a place, even if we haven't moved necessarily geographically, our views have changed. Our understanding of ourselves have changed. Every encounter with someone else in some way rubs off on us. And actually one of the most significant ways in which these categories change, not always, <coughs> is often through personal encounter. There's something about relationship that transcends or transforms some of these isms. So I still remember, this is a joke again, I, I share at my own expense. So first year at university, I fell in love with a, a woman called Janet. I thought Janet was wonderful. The, the sun shone out of every orifice in her body. I thought she was wonderful. So I followed her like a little lapdog everywhere she went. So she went here and I followed her around. And so eventually, being very shy, I plucked up the courage and I said, Janet, would you like to go to the pub? And she said, yeah, I'm happy. So I thought it was really good. So we sat in the pub and we were chatting. And at the end of it, I tried to kiss her goodnight. She says, Anthony, she says, I need to tell you something. She says, I'm not into boys. Now I was 18 years old and I genuinely didn't know what she was talking about. I thought, sorry, no, 
sorry, I, I don't quite. She says, I just don't like boys, I like girls. And I still, it's like, <laughs> seriously? And she said, yeah. But she said, but like we're friends, like we're cool, yeah? And I thought, yeah. So we were friends for three years. Now for me, every time, obviously, you know, I mean, hope transcends expectation here. I was always convinced that at some point she would turn <laughs> and date me because, you know, I mean, okay, she said she was a lesbian, but it's just because she hadn't met me before, you know, so I was <laughs> The point was that my social views changed when I met Sally. Well, not, not sorry, Janet, sorry. A middle name was Sally. It did change absolutely, but, but like the change amongst my consciousness around what was the proximity to Jesus. Because I grew up in a very good, decent evangelical church, but it was very homophobic. That some people were going to go to hell because the scriptures said X, Y, Z. And part of, part of our critique, which we'll look at in a minute in the pastoral cycle, is that our faith has taught us to critique some things but not others. So we have an issue with sexuality, but we have no issue with capitalism. Even though usury and the load of money for profit is deeply forbidden by the scriptures. But of course, actually, we learned to ignore that a while back. So part of our, and, and, and a term we will look at in a moment, about our suspicion, about how we look at critically at how things are, and ask, why is it like this? Why do we think this but not this? Why do we assume this? Why are our prejudices, our prejudgments, with only some information kicking in at some points and not others. But actually one of the fundamental ways in which we often change is by personal encounter. Now obviously some of the danger, it's not a perfect science, so one of the dangers is that sometimes we can isolate people so we can say, and it's a Congress is, is I have met racists who say, Anthony, I don't like black people, but you're okay. Because what they've done is that they've isolated me as an individual. So they can relate to me because they think I'm a nice guy. But yet somehow they haven't understood that the implication of your relationship with me is that I have a relationship with, with the wider community of which I'm a part. So of course it's not a perfect science, that sense of personal encounter. But actually there's something powerful about meeting people and finding out that... in. Every person in a category is both part of it, but they're transcendent. Whatever category we want to make, I can guarantee that every one of you, if you identify with it, there's a part of you that also transcends it. Actually, that's part of the gift of being an individual. Part of what makes us unique is the fact that we belong to others, and we, are sh- and we share identities with others, but there's no one on this planet of billions of people who's exactly like you. Even, a, even, a, a, even identical twins are not exactly the same. So, so number one is about context. And then number two, in a sense, and we've also done that, is the analysis of, con- of context. And, and things like sociology and history. Even something as simple as cultural studies that for my first degree I did a degree in history at Birmingham University and, and, and the best bit wasn't in the history department it was the courses I took with what was then called the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies that were set up by Stuart Hall and the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies just analysed everyday culture and said actually all cultures have meaning but all cultures have power in terms of how we identify them 
So give a, a, a quick example. How many of you grew up in a tradition where you put on your best clothes to go to church on a Sunday? And your best clothes were Sunday clothes, you know. And, and you went home and what's the first thing you did? You took off your Sunday clothes. What's interesting, if you, if, if you look at the, the psychology of clothing, it seems quite a straightforward thing, is that it has its roots in lots of different analyses. I just want to give you two very, very quick ones. First one, theologically, is that there's always that long tradition in the scriptures of bringing the very best to God. That like you sacrifice the unblemished lamb, you bring the... And so the very best of yourself is your best clothes. That you wear only for God. So, you know, I mean, so I have Sunday clothes that you only wore to church on Sunday. And the first thing you did, you took them off. And then you had that interesting kind of relegation thing. So when you got something new, that became the new Sunday thing. And then what was existing, that got relegated into being part of ordinary life. Because, because no other place was more important than the Sunday, but the Sunday in church. It's also a class thing. That actually one of the things about working class people, or people from broader working class cultures was, that bringing your best to Sunday, bringing your best self to Sunday, meant bringing your best clothes, that then was your attempt to put you on the same level as your social betters in the place where theologically we believed that we were the equal before God. So my dad had only two vices. He liked a little bit of a flutter. He wasn't a big gambler, but he liked a little bit of flutter. But, but his real vice was suits. He had his own Jewish tailor. He never bought a suit off the peg yet. So he would go to the market and he'd buy his two yards of material and then he'd go to his Jewish tailor. And there was something about him sitting there giving this Jewish man instructions, which were really quite brusque and, and abrupt. You know, and, I, and I'm sitting thinking, but Dad, you know, I'm like, you're a bit rude. But, but in his mind, I'm bringing my money and I'm telling you what I want. It's a shame that his suits all came up, make him look like shaft. <laughs> it's like, Dad, you know. I mean, the 70s were not a good decade for black men. I'm sorry, but you know, but he'd sit there in his legs and look like a pimp. It's like, oh, really, Dad? No, that's nasty. But anyway, the point was, as ugly as the suit was, as far as I was concerned, it was his homemade suit. And his pride was to go to church on a Sunday and know that although from Monday to Saturday he worked in a factory, on a Sunday no one outdressed Mr. Noel Reddy. Now at one level that's just a very simple thing about clothes, but actually you can see there's a lot of politics and psychology built into something very ordinary. So one of the things that that centre did was to say actually we can bring these analyses into how we understand church. But actually, our buildings are not just buildings, they're also statements about what people believed about God in the previous era. Where people sit may seem trivial, and in some respects it's not the most important thing, but again, there's something about sitting where you sit that says something about you and your place of belonging within the ecclesia, within the assembly. So analysis is important because it... It gives us more of a 360 vision of what it is to be us in the, in, in the particular context in which you're in. It doesn't answer all the questions, but, and, and, and this is a key phrase I didn't put down here, 
Yeah, scholars often talk about hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, some, of you, some of you will be familiar with this term. It simply means asking the why question. Why is this the way it is? Why do I feel? Why do I think this? Why have I been told this? Why do I accept it? And there's two parts to that. So the first part is about our social relationships. So, so, so the why question, just to break it down, so hermeneutics is the art or the science of interpretation. The art or the science of interpretation comes from the Greek god Hermes, which is the one with the figure, with the little wings on the, on the heels. And Hermes brought messages from the gods to human beings. And so the idea is that if we interpret texts, particularly biblical, holy texts, that part of what we're trying to do is to draw out what is the meaning of it especially for a particular context or, or to understand it, not just in terms of what the author might have meant, but actually what does it mean to us now? And a very simple thing to say, which again, our churches often don't tell us this. The truth is, none of us read any text, biblical text, neutrally. The, the place where we are will inform how we read it, even if we're not aware of it. So, for example, just before coffee, I did say that, you know, that it's very interesting how I know black men who will read Ephesians 6.5 and will say, well, of course, you know, we can't take Paul at first value. He, he, you know, he, he couldn't have possibly have meant that slave should obey their masters. And even if he meant it then, it can't be true now. So we have to kind of rethink it. And they'll go all kinds of tortuous ways to try and wrestle with that. Go to the next verse and wives submit to the husbands and... That's what Paul says. I believe it, he says it. It's like, yeah, but whoa, 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 whoa. Where's the inconsistency? The inconsistency is explained by our social location. I've yet to meet a rich person who literally believes it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. At which point, every rich person, particularly if it's a judge or the business person, will say, yeah, but like Jesus can't really be literally true. But yet other bits of text we're happy to take. So a homonical suspicion starts from the why question. Why are we assuming this to be the case? Why is it that in many of the parables that we get in the, in the Gospels that Jesus will have a story with a master and servants? We assume that the master's God. Why are we assuming that the master's God? The classic one is the parable of the talents. The master is nasty and rapacious and greedy. And when the third servant or slave challenges it, the master doesn't say, well, actually, how dare you malign me because I want to protect my reputation. Actually, the master says, actually, well, if you knew that was true, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so I'd get some interest? So here's a master who's not forgiving, by the way. And he's mean, and certainly, and the first to admit that they're scared of him. So here's a master who's mean, unforgiving, and cruel. And yet, all has been taught to read the master as God. Is that really the picture that Jesus is telling us of the kingdom? So, hermeneutical suspicion actually goes back to what our friends said a bit earlier is that we begin to ask critical questions of the text 
that we hear preached on, our Bible studies given on. And we ask ourselves, in light of all this, whose interests are served by a particular reading? It's very interesting that if we take the parable of the talents and we read it in another way, it endorses a certain type of capitalism. That, so the first two work hard and and make money for the master. But the third one is lazy and shiftless. And that's what I was taught. Lazy and shiftless, and God helps those who help themselves. That's the Protestant work ethic. It's the ethic that this now removed white Jesus certainly would have endorsed. It's one that certainly many American presidents, I think, there was a president, Herbert Hoover, was present from 1923 through to 1932, just before, uh, just before Roosevelt, was a right-wing conservative. And that was his favourite passage, because he said, this proved, absolute proof, that God endorses capitalism, he says. Well, as a rich white man, he would say that, wouldn't he? So we have to ask ourselves, if you're the Eritrean woman, who's on the other end of the scale, because let's face it, if hard work was the determination of how well you do, then there shouldn't be one poor African person in the world, because trust me, they work bloody hard. But it's a system that they didn't set up, so they still fail. I wonder what that passage says to you, if you're the one who's working hard for a cruel, rapacious master, and no matter how hard you work, you're still not making any progress. How we read text is informed by our location. And we're not always aware of it. So one of the things that liberation, theologies of liberation do is that they help us to be conscious of the lens that we bring. So for me, as someone who's a black theologian, one of the most important things that it gave me was a way of beginning to read the text and to see how often interpretations were given as ways of reinforcing whiteness. Sometimes it was done deliberate, sometimes it wasn't even done deliberate, it was just done. In the same way that feminist theology has begun to rethink Christian traditions and to rethink how we read the text, taking patriarchy into account. There was something significant about Jesus' relationships with women that still have much to teach us and what would happen in our social relationships if when we were challenged, rather than becoming defensive, and then throwing back and saying, well, you know, I mean, how dare you say that? We said, actually, I hear what you're saying, and you're right. Actually, being challenged by what you said, I need to change. What would happen if our social relationships did that? But oftentimes, what tends to happen, even, as I said, that these categories are not about righteousness, so there's nothing to say that the that the people at the far end are somehow more godlike. Of course they're not. And part of our fallenness, oftentimes, is that even within our social location, within our identity politics, is that we can get trapped into it so that when we're challenged, our response is not a gracious one, it's a defensive one. I still remember the first time that I was really challenged for my sexism and patriarchy about 20-odd years ago in the Methodist Church. And my reaction was, well, how dare you say that you know, to me? 
So my reaction to the challenge wasn't to stay in the space, it was to walk away and to say, well, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not going to take this on board. Part of our challenge, certainly of everything in the group, is, is this intersectionality. How do we listen to the other in order that we grow and our awareness is enlarged? And fundamentally, it comes down to this one of the things I want to get us to look at in a moment. It, it actually is not a, a social idea, it's a theological one. And, and what do I mean by that? That one of the problems with this sometimes is that it can look like anthropology, not theology. That at its worst, it's lots of very, very well-meaning progressive ideas that we develop because we think that the world should be progressive and we should love each other as a matter of principle. Which is not to say that we shouldn't do any of those things, of course not. But actually what the person theology says is, yes, these, our analysis is okay, but really it's just a way of trying to understand God better. And so really what makes this transformative is not our human nature around how good we can analyse, because the truth is all of us are fallen and have fallen short of the glory of God. That left to our own devices, we end up finding new ways to oppress each other. It's why all forms of social utopia never work. That every revolution, so for example, when Fidel Castro died a few years ago, and son was a bit of a lefty, all of us can, well, certainly I can find, always to excuse like the things he did because I like his politics. If it's something I don't like, then of course I condemn them, because, because that's what we do. And the truth is, it was, it was a well-meaning revolution that Fidel Castro tried to bring in on the 1st of January 1959. If you, however, belonged to the wrong group or you didn't quite buy into what he was going to say, it became less idealised. All our social relationships, attempts to create social Utopia, which is why there's always a danger of trying to make the kingdom too much like a particular political or social idea. Certainly, if one looks at a particular type of theology of liberation in South Africa. So black theology in South Africa was very much based on ending apartheid. Apartheid has ended. It's been ended for quite a while. And the social relationships in terms of poverty are as bad, if not worse than ever. And the level of repression, it's one of the worst places. Well, so Johannesburg is the worst city in the world for rape. Worst city in the world for rape. It's not the kingdom. But of course, the truth is, all the theologians really knew deep down that actually ending apartheid was not going to bring about the kingdom. It was just a journey on the way. Because there are lots of other things, like patriarchy and sexism, that are deeply embedded into the fabric. That means that even amidst the struggle, there were still those gradations between the men who ran it and the women who were doing the frontline work. So really, it's important that we realise that what enables this to be fruitful is not how good we are. It's the fact that God is just and righteous. Rethinking Jesus in terms of theologies of liberation is to bring about new ways of seeing Jesus that speak to all forms of identities that are condemned and are seen as less than. This is my favourite. This is a Jesus who is dread. Black and 
with locks. Now, what is interesting is that this version of Jesus, my parents hate this version of Jesus. It's like, but that, my mum died a few years ago. But I still remember that when I was preaching in Jamaica, in, in the church they retired to, of, uh, so what was happening was, was I go visit them on holiday and they'll say, um, uh, 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 Anthony, you're here and you're such a famous theologian, which my parents loved, you know. I mean, my mum loved having a doctor in, in you know, so she would say, oh, by the way, and, and, uh, and this is my son, Anthony, and he's a doctor, you know, which was embarrassing because some of you are Facebook friend of mine, you know the story. So, so the story says, the woman turns up, friend of my uh, parents, and I said, oh, by the way, uh, um, this is Anthony. He's, my, he's, he's a doctor. So the woman starts to undo her blouse. I say, no, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Not that type of doctor. And she says, okay, so what kind of doctor are you? I said, well, doctor of learning and stuff and the, the, theology. I said, oh, okay. So when's the second coming? Yeah, I don't know that. So my husband died many, many years ago. Is he in heaven? I said, well, I, I would hope so. She says, but hope so is not the answer. Easy. I said, I don't know that. So about three or four other questions that I couldn't answer, she said, what can I doctor you? A useless doctor. <laughs> anyway, so I used to go visit uh, my parents, and they would ask me to preach. And the only time they ever got exasperated, because, you know, I mean, they knew I was in a black field, and, and, and my mum would say, yeah, but like, you're not going to come with all that black stuff again, aren't you? Are you? And I said, but mum, the whole congregation's black. All of us are black. We're all black. We all come from a colonial background. What else should I... Okay, if, if, if you must, if you must. Okay. And for the most part, they were generally okay with it, except a number of years ago, the Bible Society has a policy whereby if a million people speak a particular language, as opposed to a dialect, they will translate the scriptures into that language. And so, as UNESCO did their use of investigations and said, actually, Jamaican Patois is not a dialect, it is a language. So, so the language of Jamaica is what most ordinary people speak. Therefore, we will translate the scriptures into this language. So I preached on using this particular Jamaican Bible. Well, but actually, they lost the Jamaican New Testament as it was at the time. My parents were incandescent with rage. <laughs> How dare you bring this bad speaking ignorant, disgusting language and they're saying to me, in that ignorant, disgusting language how, how could you do actually, never do that again because what they internalise is that the word of God could not be handled in this vulgar language of the working class people because that's what the missionaries are taught and that's what the church had internalised so of course, one of the key things that happens when you go to theological college is that they give you elocution lessons if you come from the wrong class in order that you can speak the, pen, the proper pronounced English as respected by clergy who are now part of the middle classes that help to run society. Still internalised. So this Jesus is not just a challenge to empire, it's a challenge even to black people themselves to say actually all the things that you've been taught that are terrible, God in Christ is identified with it. I want to show one more. Okay, this is number 23, so we'll start from the back. And Jesus 
Jesus is in an intimate embrace with another man. And 23 says, it's the foot washing. Actually, yeah. Often, it says, it's a foot washing by Kathy Pridis. Often God-given images in nature provide further understanding of the Jesus story. Here, is that number 23? Just make sure I'm in the right one. 23, okay, yeah. It says, here, an ancient yew tree with many roots exposed and fused together from the trunk as the inspiration of the painter. Jesus, the servant king, and Peter, the revolutionary, start from such different and separate political positions like the roots of the you. But Jesus says to him, unless I wash your feet, you are not in communion with me. The painting portrays both the separateness and the oneness with which this particular act of service is always graced. Their heads are closely joined in an intimate realisation of truth. Jesus' hands both teach and steady Peter, who self-deprecating also reaches out in embrace. As it goes on, you see that they are both close together and there's a closeness, there's an embrace of Jesus who is human engaged with another human. Oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think of him as so heavenly and so other that somehow his humanness, which is the very central thing of the incarnation, gets lost. The truth is we don't want a Jesus too human. We don't really want Jesus to be like us. It's just easier to follow someone who is from a distance and maybe looks a bit like us, but really is so different in substance, that so different that we can actually ignore him. In, in, in one of my early books I talk about how a lot of Christianity teaches us to worship Jesus but not to follow him. We put him on a pedestal, we worship him in bread and wine in terms of Eucharist or communion or Holy Communion. But actually, the only Jesus who says, follow me and, and pick up your cross and do as I do, is something that we often ignore. So one last picture, and then, and then just hopefully conversations. This is the most troubling Jesus for me when I first began to study. It's a Christa. So it's a Jesus as a female, naked, on the cross. And the first time I saw this, I was like, whoa, 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 too much. Too, ooh. I, I, and part of it is about my own sexuality. If Jesus was a woman, but in clothes, it'd be, it, it'd be bad. But not too bad, like to quote my grandma. My grandma had a way of sort of saying, Auntie, that's bad, but not too bad. It'd be bad, but not... Jesus, as a woman, but dressed like a man, yeah, I could do with that. But a naked Christa brings out issues of erotica for a lot of men, because actually that's the only way we can engage with naked women. If they're, I hate to say it, not be on PC, but if they're old and fat, uh, that's okay. But as long as they're reasonably young and nubile, the truth is when they're naked, we, we barely only have one thought. 
because that's how we're often socialised in terms of how images of women are portrayed. So therefore, having a Jesus on a cross that looks like the kind of woman many of us have been taught to gaze at in inappropriate ways is probably the most challenging of all the pictures in this. But what it does is, and this comes out of feminist theology, another type of theology of liberation is, it critiques the male gaze. It's a very quick observation that I was once taught by a woman student I worked with many moons ago. And she makes this interesting observation that I never thought about. She says, Anthony, have you ever noticed that when women go as a group and they see really, really buff men taking their clothes off, like they all laugh. It's a joke. It's, it's really funny. Okay, yes, these men are really, really well, well built and they're well buffed, but all of us laugh because it's humorous. She says, if you reverse it and you take the female equivalent and get a group of men there, we ain't laughing. So very quickly then, in summation, if we reverse the place where Jesus is found, where God in Christ is found, not at the centre and representing power, but at the margins and representing all various marginalised groups within the different theologies of liberation, critiquing the systems that put them there, it does two things. Firstly, it, it seeks to challenge and rehabilitate the image and the reality of those individuals, it says there's nothing wrong with being you. It challenges what we define as a norm. But crucially, where two or three are gathered, so is Christ. It means that those of us who are in different positions of entitlement and power here are forced to see God in the other. So very, very quickly, what would happen if we really looked for God, not in the places of power and privilege and comfort, but actually in an Eritrean woman right at the edge? If, if we saw Christ in her, we would have to seriously treat her better in order to be consistent with our faith. Where God is located, it doesn't mean that God is not located with the rich and the powerful, but it does mean that God has a particular preferential option, a preference for those who are deemed the least of these. As I said in Matthew 25, 31-46. Which therefore is the upside-down kingdom that we often talk about, but so rarely practice. What would happen if we organise our church, not on the basis of the educated, and I sit as one who sits in that position as someone who's educated. I get my opinion listened to because I've written books and I've got a title. I'm oppressed in some respects, but in other respects I'm enormously entitled and privileged. That's just my final thing about theologies of liberation. If I live to be 100 and I'm 53, don't think I'll get to 100, but you never know. But if I do, I will never be half the Christian my mother was. In terms of her prayer, in terms of her, her vocation to serve others. And yet, in her life in Britain, no one rarely saw Christ in her. They see in me, sometimes, 
I'm here speaking to you. That tells you that there is some significance to me because all of you have turned up on a sunny day and like to listen to me. Doubt anyone would ever have turned up for my mother. And yet the truth is, and this is not just rhetoric, this is what I deeply believe in my marrow. She portrayed Christ in ways that I could never imagine. What would happen if our church actually did that? 